From Foreign Policy Magazine, in partnership with the Doha Forum, this is Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal. Over the course of this eight-part series, we've looked at how we could and should rebuild from the COVID-19 pandemic to create a more just and equitable world. We've examined climate change, income inequality, global health, and much more. This week, I want to address one of our most entrenched societal ills, systematic racism. I'm joined by activist and civil rights leader Dr. Bernice King, the daughter of Coretta Scott King and Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Last year's Black Lives Matter movement seemed to be an awakening for some, but for many black and brown communities, it exposed a truth that has always been painfully clear. In a remarkable show of solidarity, protests against racism and police tactics are showing up around the world. Outrage at the death of George Floyd, an African-American man while in police custody in Minneapolis. In city after American city tonight, thousands of people have once again taken to the streets. Waves of peaceful protests marched on bigger than ever before. Dr. Bernice King is the CEO of the King Center, as well as a global thought leader and peace advocate. Dr. King, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So let me start by asking you this. Last year, when you first saw the video, that horrific, ugly video of Derek Chauvin with his knee on George Floyd, what were your first thoughts? Well, as probably with so many other people, there was a sense of outrage, a sense of sadness, deeply troubled that we're still experiencing this kind of uh, horrific uh, behavior. I recognize that uh, this was an important moment though, because we were in the pandemic, because they had time to pay attention finally, because this is something Mm. uh, we're very familiar with in the black community. Right, it's not new at all. It's, It's not new at all. And so thank God for social media. I mean, people were outraged and sensed, moved to recognize that we have to do something about racial injustice in this country. And so thank God for that. Indeed. Uh, That awakening. Because had it not happened, I just shudder to think where we would be. Were you surprised by the level of the response across America, but I should say also around the world? I mean, BLM just gained so much traction and attention globally in rallies and support marches in so many different countries. Did that surprise you? It did. I was pleasantly surprised by the responses it indicated that this is something that resonates around the world. People who saw that for sure the biggest protest against racism, against police. Know that there are similar types of issues in their own nation. And so it was really a global outcry against the triple evils that my father talked about. I want to hope today 
lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit. Poverty, racism, militarism. Declaring eternal opposition to poverty, racism, and militarism with this powerful- So in some regards, pleasantly surprised, but also again, deeply troubled that we find ourselves in a similar state 50 some years after his assassination. Mm. Your father, of course, was such a civil rights icon and so was your mother. How do you think they would have responded to the events of the last year? What do you think would have gone through their minds? What would they have done? Knowing the kind of people they were, both of them were strategists. And so I think in my father's instance, he obviously would have tried to offer some words of burden and healing and guidance in the hour, but also would have probably aligned with different organizational leaders to strategize about policies. And my mother was a great coalition builder, so she would have been on the phone <laughs> making calls and organizing people. But they're not here. We're the ones that are here now. We have to solve these tough problems. And something my father said that I think we have to do better across the world when we're facing these evils, as he calls them, poverty, racism, militarism, when we're facing injustice, when we're seeking to create an equitable, just, humane, and, and peaceful world. And that is the nettlesome task. It's irksome hard work, but the nettlesome task of discovering how to organize our strength into compelling power. What you're calling for here is a sense of revolution of values. Yes. And from what you're describing, we're headed there. I hope so. <laughs> I, I, I hope so. When my father talked about a revolution of values, he was talking about becoming a people-centered society, that things are not what drive you. Materialism is not what drive you. Profit is not what drives you, but compassion and care uh, for people. I mean, the sky's the limit as to right. what would change. And in, these in are systemic, these are systemic, systemic, yeah, systemic. big systemic changes um, you're talking about. And in a sense, but, it but, goes it's, against... but it's also it's also bravery. It's also courage that's required. Mm. It's, it's also a willingness to bear the sacrifice together. Right. So let me ask you this. A lot of what you're describing here is systemic change and the systems that we're up against are everything from capitalism to globalization to urbanization all big global trends that, in a sense, um, go against communities, go against the personal stuff that you're describing. And systemic change, as you said, takes courage, real courage. How do we inspire people to push for these kinds of systemic changes? It's a big lift, I can tell you that, first and foremost. And it's not a sprint. I think a lot of people want this to happen overnight and it's not, I mean, we didn't get here overnight, but it starts with that mindset, that different way of thinking, 
I mean, there's going to have to be a lot of work done to get people, and, and it has to start at a younger age, if I might be frank. We've got to teach the younger generation this person-oriented approach and looking at everything, I mean, created. And so mm -hmm. if we are trying to do systemic change, first we've got to do some internal work because most of us have been brought up in these systems. And so our thinking is still kind of aligned with that kind of systemic way of approaching things. And as more and more people do that and the connections are made, the old system loses its strength and power. So to me, the biggest work on systems is the work on our systems of thinking. And that takes time. That takes time. It's a lot of education. And so I saw this pandemic as an opportunity because people are now open and say, okay, what can I do? More people are saying, what can I mm. do? What is my role? So more people are asking you that question now? Oh, I hear it all the time. I mean, what can we do? What should the role of this be? And blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So what in your mind would be an indication that true progress has been made? What would indicate that we've achieved a level of racial equality and equity that's in line with your father's dreams? Well, I mean, I think one indicator is when the data changes. When you're talking about health, when you're talking about wealth creation, when you're talking about income, when you're talking about education, when you're talking about the environment, criminal justice, when you look at all of those different areas, Black Americans are still at the bottom. Hmm. We still have the worst numbers in every area. So for me, the indicator will be when that changes. And it's you so know, entrenched. It's, it's very entrenched. It's very entrenched, but... Thank God that a change has come in terms of a greater awareness that it exists. Because mm. so many people were living oblivious to this fact. I mean, I have friends, mm. obviously, white friends, totally unaware. I mean, they're thinking because everybody's kind of going to work. Everybody's kind of living their life. They're not even aware that there are these practices in place. There's these systems in place that keep these racialized numbers in place. They're not even aware of it. And so the key, as you said, is, you know, what are we going to do? But before we can do it, I'm just, I'm saying this because I caution people rushing to the do. When mm. you still got to purge yourself of this old mindset, because you'll just create something that looks like the old. We talk about inclusion. You can't talk about inclusion and still exclude white men. So what does that conversation look like? Because they've left us out. Inclusion means all of these marginalized groups, which is not the white male, right? And you can say white heterosexual male. You can even say white heterosexual Judeo-Christian male, whatever. When we have these conversations, if we're not careful, we will become what their greatest fear is. Mm. You're saying that we need to rephrase some of the public debate and the ways in which we speak about these issues. I'm saying 
if we're going to build something that's sustainable, we are all here as a mm. part of the beloved community. Every group, every form of identification, we are all here. Mm. And what we create anew has to take all of that into consideration. However, in taking it into consideration, you do have to look at the weakest points and address that and then ensure that as we go forward, there is this sense of true equality. And that's what my dad talked about, the beloved community. One of the characteristics is in that all people share in the wealth of the earth and the resources. There's an inadequate sharing right now. So we got to do this balancing act and balance it in such a way that people have dignity. Let me ask you a question that is for me personal. I'm an immigrant to this country. I'm one of, I guess, hundreds of thousands of people who move to the United States every year and who vote with their feet to call America home. Many of us come from countries which have also had their own forms of racism. I come from India, where various minority groups experience repression. And of course, we used to have a literal caste system. But when people like me move here to the United States, we know that the American experience with racism is unique. We feel it immediately. The racism Mm. against blacks in America, the legacy of slavery, it's something that we know that needs to be addressed differently and with far greater sensitivity. Yeah, I've heard from some people from other nations that come here and there's a certain profile that's given concerning the black community. That has to change. And so I think it's important that there be a concerted effort to learn about the Black community intimately, Mm. create relationships, real genuine relationships. People are steered Mm. away from neighborhoods that are Black to redlining. Daddy said it best. We must learn how to live together as brothers and sisters or together we'll be forced to perish as fools because you know, what affects one of us directly ultimately is going to affect all of us. And the best way to do that is to really connect across these different superficial lines that we have created. But obviously, this is not just about immigrants. It's about everyone. It's, it's that sense of, of wanting to connect, of wanting to be open. I wanted to ask you, so much of what you've said to me in this interview your thoughts through years and decades of work, and yet you're also channeling the work and the thoughts and the inspiration of your parents. Is that challenging to do that, to follow in their footsteps? Of course. Uh, uh, They accomplished and still accomplishing so much, and that's what makes it difficult. Most people who are in a new generation and the other generation has gone on, they're not having to deal with how that person continues to loom large in a world. Um, It always makes it so difficult because we have the results of their achievements. We are ready to march on ballot boxes. And they were large. Use of the public accommodations for all of God's children. We're ready to I mean, They literally broke the backbone of de jure segregation. Spirit of nonviolence. Yes. Segregation 
by law is no longer legal. Home with your brothers in Alabama. Yeah. You will look around and see that glad day when all of God's children will be able to cry out, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty. So it is very difficult. But what makes it easier though is that I'm a part of a legacy that I can say the work that they did and more importantly the blueprint that they left and the teachings that they left are essential and we know that it works. I'm committed to raising up a cadre of individuals who are practitioners of the nonviolence as taught by my father, who truly embrace it as a way of life. I don't think mm -hmm. he had an opportunity to, to do that. And my mother started the process, but with technology, you're able to reach a greater number of people. So I'm hoping that there's a critical mass that can be reached in this way that will help ultimately to provide the foundation for this new world that we must enter into, which is you know around those revolution of values. You know, not just person-centered, Daddy also talked about loyalty, that we have to all develop this overriding loyalty to humanity. Hmm. And we're, we're not there yet. But we are on our way in terms of that. I see that in the next generation. The younger generation thinks totally different for the most part, because at the end of the day, we all want to live in a world that is just humane, equitable, and peaceful. So, yeah, that's my commitment. <laughs> it's a strong, worthy, important commitment. Dr. King, I wanted to end by asking you about what makes you hopeful. You know, for me, it's so clear that we've come a long way, but it's also so clear just how much more needs to be done to achieve equity in every sense of that word in the United States, but also around the world. But given all of that, what does make me hopeful, at least, is that the discourse seems to be shifting. And there's been an acceleration in that change of discourse in the last year. That makes me optimistic. What makes you optimistic about the road ahead? Similar to you, the discourse, but also the multitude of diverse people who are focused on getting this right, on change and transformation. It doesn't take everybody, but it does take a critical mass. And the energy that comes from those that are much younger than me. That makes me mm. hopeful because there's a generation that is really committed to creating this beloved community. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time. 
make justice a reality for all of God's children. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Dr. King, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for you. My thanks to Dr. Bernice King for her time and words of wisdom. Thanks for listening to Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. Global Reboot is a partnership between Foreign Policy and the Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Dan Efron, Darcy Polder, and Zamone Perez. And that concludes our series. If you have feedback, we'd like to hear from you. Email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. If you like this show, check out our other ones at foreignpolicy.com slash podcasts. And finally, make sure to follow us on Twitter or Instagram to get the latest. Thanks for listening to Global Reboot. It's been a real pleasure. We'll see you next time.